If you want to describe the perfect superhero, how would you do it? You could list the characteristics of strength, integrity, courage, and self-giving, or you could simply say Captain America. When we say Captain America, we see the perfect superhero. Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805. An image can contain volumes of backstory and meaning in just a few words. The challenge is you need to understand the meaning of the image. Now today we're going to look at the book of Zechariah, and we'll ask the question of why God uses images so much in the Bible. We'll try to make sense of them and how these images challenge us to become a better image of Jesus to our world. Now, again, as I said earlier, the book of Zechariah is filled with images, and the challenge that modern readers have is that we don't understand the backstory. For us, visions of myrtle trees, golden lampstands, and a flying scroll make about as much sense to us as Captain America, Thor, and Spider-Man would have made to the Old Testament Jews. Now, we're going to look at, though, what these images meant to the people of the time. But before we do that, let's do a little bit of background, a little bit of history of where we are in this book and in the overall history of the Jewish people. Now, Zechariah and Haggai preached at the same time last week in our podcast. We talked about Haggai. The Jews had returned to their homeland from the Babylonian captivity. They started rebuilding the temple, which was the center of their life and their worship, but they got discouraged. People were threatening them. Enemies were threatening them. But more than that, they got distracted. They decided instead of building God's house, they were going to build their own house. And that did not please the Lord. Things did not go well for them. And so God sent Haggai first and then Zechariah to preach to them. Haggai preached first. He came about two years ahead of Zechariah. He started preaching. Now he was very practical. His book's short. It's action motivated. It's concerned with the here and now. He says, look, it's been 15 years. You are building your houses instead of building God's temple. Nothing is going right for you. He says you you make money and it's it's like putting it in a bag of holes and you plant a lot but you harvest little and that's because God is displeased. You need to get back, do the most important thing which is to build the temple and then God will bless you. Well he started doing the preaching, he gets the people motivated and then Zechariah comes along and he has somewhat of the same message early on but then the book of Zechariah goes into so much more. He then expands into a prophetic vision of both the near and far future of the people. Now, I'm going to give you an overview of the visions in a few minutes, but this book, more than any other, is a real challenge to read because of the complexity of it. You can't just read it and really have it make sense. This is where you definitely need to look at Bible commentaries. And so I want to do for a few minutes now is just give you an overall view of why Bible commentaries are useful. And I'm going to give you some recommendations on different ones. Now to get the exact links, I know it's kind of hard just to listen to some of this. So the exact URLs, the website address, and more will be on the wwwbible or 5 podcast. But let me just go over, first of all, why commentaries are useful. They're useful not only for difficult passages, but I find they're very useful just to 
check our conclusions on all of our studies. If you just read the Bible alone, sometimes you can come up with interpretations that really aren't correct. They do help prevent faulty interpretations and pride in that thinking that we're the first ones that's ever read this passage or ever made sense out of it. Now you do need to be careful of the commentaries that you read. They're not all equal in value and again I'm going to give you a number of them that I recommend. One of the best sources that I've found is www.preceptaustin.org. Now this website has really matured over the years. It started out simply as a listing of the people who attended the Precept Bible Studies in Austin and the different resources that they've used. But over the last few years they have really reorganized the website and it is just a fantastic resource of freely available Bible commentaries without advertisements, without a lot of extra junk. Really, really helpful. It's conservative, but conservative in a really good way. It's very biblical. And if they feel that a commentator, that they have sort of a concern on biblical consistency or whatever with something that a commentator says, they will give you the comments. There are a lot of uh, charts and just, it's it's really good. I, I highly, highly recommend it. It's one of the first things that I turn to when I'm doing a study. The next one is the BibleGateway.com. Now, this is uh, the only one that I'm mentioning that you need to pay for. The rest are all free. This is $39 a year, and I really hesitated before spending the money on it, but it is more than worth it. There's 40-plus resources, and the thing that is useful with this is it makes available to you a lot of the very contemporary and recent commentaries, Bible dictionaries, things like that. The, uh, a lot of these other resources, the materials are older. They're still very, very valuable. In fact, they're excellent because some of the best commentaries were written years ago. But this one has some of the newer ones and uh, the NIV resources and a lot of things that are, are very useful. Very few ads. It's extremely easy to use. It's called their Bible Gateway Plus. And again, at www.biblegateway.com. Com. I do recommend that. Another one that I just love is the blueletterbible.org. Now this is one of the very oldest ones for those of you that remember the start of the internet as um, I do and um, I know a number of people listening. Uh, this was one of the first ones and that's how it got its name, the Blue Letter Bible, because early on all of the hyperlinks were in blue and they were the first one that I remember anyway that put the Bible online and you could jump from place to place and it was just quite a wonderful thing. Like all the others, it has matured greatly over the years. It's the one that I use and I find the easiest to use for original language study. It has very easy access to Strong's Concordance, which is what you use when you want to look up words in the original Greek or Hebrew. Very easy to use, very easy to understand. The commentaries on it are a little bit limited, but they're useful. But in addition to written commentaries, commentaries. They have uh, resources in audio. They have uh, they have all kinds of miscellaneous stuff they've just collected over the years. Information about hymns and just all kinds of different miscellaneous Christian things, but it's real good. Then some of the others that I find useful, uh, gotquestions.org. 
Now this is in a question and answer format and some of the best materials, it's kind of actually hard to find on the site. What I will do is I will do a Google search. For example, on this study I did commentaries on Zachariah and I found the best explanation and it's it's written out fully in the notes um, on www.bible805.com on the meaning of the different visions of Zechariah. But it would have been hard probably to have looked it up just on the site. It's, it's kind of funny that way. Now then um, another one is um, Bible.ca. Now this is a really funny site. It uh, has some very useful materials, particularly in historical studies. The layout is very dated, really funky old interface, but it, um, it has some great stuff on history that I think you would find useful. The other, the next one is Equip. Org. Now this started out as an apologetics website. It still is primarily, but it's one of my favorites. And I often check on various topics when I'm looking up things. And then the last one I want to mention is Wikipedia. Now some people are sort of surprised that I use that. And I, I remember a while back somebody really made fun of me for using some stuff on Wikipedia. But I, I find it extremely helpful. Now it's secular in its theology. I don't use it for actual Bible teaching, but it's great for general historical background, for images, and sometimes to see what a secular view of a particular topic is, but it's it's very helpful. Now there are lots of others online, but I do tend to avoid the ones with lots of ads and different things like that. The ones I've given you though, and they will be on the uh, Bible 805 website, I think you'll find very useful. I really want to, and I shouldn't even say this, but I really want to do a little video tour of some of these. I don't know if I'll get it done this week or not, but um, I'll let you know on the podcast if I do that. Also on the website, I'll link to it if if I get that done. But um, just Another thing that you need to keep in mind, just in background before we jump into the book, is on the type of the book that Zachariah falls under, the genre of that particular book. Now we've talked about in the past the importance of genre, the importance of the difference, for example, between a historical book and a book of the law in the Old Testament. The key resource, and there is a book review on the website um, about this book, how to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Fee and Stewart. It is such an excellent book on the study of genres or the types of the books in the Bible. Now this one is, uh, the book of Zechariah is a very unique one in that it is an apocalyptic book. Now let me give you the definition of that. And actually this definition is out of one of the resources on the Bible Gateway. But anyway, let me just read it to you. Apocalyptic literature. It is a type of Jewish and early early Christian literature containing visions or revelations, hence the term apocalyptic, which comes from the Greek apocalypsis, meaning a revelation or a disclosure from God concerning the imminent coming of the end of the present evil age and the final advent of God's kingdom. Now, then it goes on, and this is very helpful. Listen closely. When reading apocalyptic literature, there are a couple of important guidelines to keep in mind. First, each detail does not always carry 
symbolic significance. Even the details that do carry symbolic significance may not be transparent to us, and speculating accomplishes little. Second, you, basically what they're saying is you want to get the overall big picture. You know, don't get really hung up on, on little details like there'll be um, horses. Well, the color of them might signify something, but that's not the whole point that there's different colored horses, um, that kind of thing. Second, it's important to remember that the apocalyptic vision is not the message itself, but it is the vehicle or occasion for the message. So too, the message of the first vision of Zechariah is not that there's going to be four horses of different colors in a myrtle grove. That message is clearly laid out in Zechariah, and we'll get to that on exactly what that means in a few minutes. Apocalyptic literature is simply a medium, and in the end, it is more interested in revealing God than in revealing the future. So you need to understand that even though this is telling us something about what is going to happen, it gives us an overall picture, an image, a story. You don't want to make it too literal or pick it apart too much. One last way to understand what you're reading in the individual passages, and this is probably the most important of all, and the most important commentary of all, and that is the Bible itself. The Bible is great commentary on itself because, number one, it cannot contradict itself. It comes from one author, ultimately, and one mind from God himself, and it's one story. It's the redemption of fallen humanity. All scripture is inspired by God, as Timothy tells us, and is useful for teaching the faith and correcting error, for resetting the direction of a man's life and training him in good living. The scriptures are the comprehensive equipment for the man of God and fit him fully for all branches of his work. That's 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 in the Phillips translation. Now, for the Bible, though, to serve as a commentary for you and to be useful to you, you need to be familiar with all of it. You need to understand it as a whole. And if until you can, you can do that, then the parts themselves won't make as much sense and you can interpret them correctly if they're read in isolation. Now, to do that, I, I emphasize this again and again, but it is so important. You need to get into the habit of reading the Bible through every year. Now, when you do that, some people say, well, I get bored, or, well, I didn't really get anything out of it. It doesn't matter. Sometimes, and I've, I've done this every year myself for many, many years, sometimes the passages just sing, and your soul rejoices, and you just think, oh, this is so wonderful. And sometimes, quite honestly, it is a slog to get through them. But I've made that a discipline of my life. And I can't encourage you to do it enough. And if you do that, it will give, and especially after a few years go by, and you really have a sense of what the overall Bible says, how it fits together, you will have an understanding of every passage you read in more depth than you can even imagine possible. When people make goofy statements like, well, you know, the Bible says this, and it's something that the Bible absolutely doesn't say, you won't go, well, I wonder, does it really? You go, no, it doesn't. 
It absolutely doesn't say that. Now you might have to go to a concordance or a Google search or whatever to find out exactly what the passage or what you're talking about, but it will give you tremendous confidence in your life. So read through the whole Bible every year. Now I I do recommend that you, when you do that, you do it in historical order. I think that is the most important way to read it because God spoke to his people in specific historical times and settings. And again, you won't understand his message properly if you don't understand when it was given. These messages to the people that returned from captivity in the book of Zechariah do not make any sense at all all if you're just reading them just jumping right into it and and not really knowing what it's about i have reading plans on www.bible805.com there's a lot of chronological reading plans mine's just one that that's very commonly used but whatever you do i can't encourage you enough to do that Also, too, it's important to look at the entire Bible when you are doing a study on, say, a particular topic, such as prayer, on uh, sites like the Blue Letter Bible, and there's a lot of others, that you can look up a topic, and then you get verses throughout the entire Bible on that topic. For example, again, the study of prayer, and I'm, I'm actually thinking next year about doing different topical studies for this podcast. Sometimes we will just focus on a verse that we really like what it says and we like what it promises. But if we don't read what the entire Bible says on a topic, we can easily distort that. And we can, again, just focus on what we want to focus on and not maybe necessarily all of the commands of God and what he expects of us. So read the whole Bible. It's really, really important. Now then, let's jump back in specifically to Zechariah. Here is a great introductory quote from John MacArthur in his commentary on it. He says, This book is the most messianic, apocalyptic, and eschatological in the Old Testament. Primarily, it is about Jesus Christ focusing on his coming glory as a means to comfort Israel. While the book is filled with visions, prophecies, signs, celestial visitors, and the voice of God, it is also practical, dealing with issues like repentance, divine care, salvation, and holy living. Prophecy was soon to be silent for more than 400 years until John the Baptist so God used Zechariah to bring a rich, abundant outburst of promise for the future to sustain the faithful remnant through those silent years. And I love that uh, just hopeful way that he introduces the book. So let's jump into it. First of all, let me give you a little bit of an outline of the book. He uh, Zechariah initially rebukes the people, and then the book is divided into two sections. First of all, there are eight visions while they're building the temple, and these primarily are to encourage the people, and uh, then in between those visions, then there's a second set of visions that are prophecies after the building of the temple. These concern the Messiah, both his first and second coming, and in between the two sets of visions are some practical challenges for how the people should live. Zechariah starts in with the book, letting the people 
be reminded that they had sinned, God had punished them, and then he also says, and he takes care of this in just a couple of verses, he then says, then they repented, and the Lord Almighty has done to us what our sins deserve, basically they say, and so he kind of gets their sin confession out of the way, and then he jumps right in to his visions on how God is going to be with them while they are building the temple. Again, just a reminder of why visions are hard for us to understand. We need to know the backstory. We need to know why they were meaningful and how they were meaningful to the people that were hearing the visions. One uh, reminder, in addition to the example of superheroes that I gave when I started, the think about the Statue of Liberty. On the surface, it's just a big statue of a lady with a torch in one hand. Now, that doesn't really say a whole lot, but what it symbolizes to an immigrant, to someone who is coming to the United States, it's an image of hope, a new beginning, of freedom. And so when you look at that image from that viewpoint, it says all of these things more than just what the description would say. And so what I'm going to just go over briefly now are the visions in the book of Zechariah and what they meant to the people. The first vision is a horse, and these all come again from www.gotquestions.org and on the Bible 805 website, and I'm sorry, I'm referring to it so much more this time than I usually do. I try to usually make the podcast self-contained, but this book is just kind of a challenge, and so there is there is more in the notes and on the website, But and there are fuller explanations of the visions there, but it starts out with a horse among the myrtle trees, and And this vision is to assure the people that God loves them and that he would restore Jerusalem. Now, how in the world they got that message from it, I don't know, but that's what the commentators tell us. And then there are four horns and four craftsmen, and the angel tells Zechariah at this time that these are the four kingdoms that have oppressed Israel and that they're going to be torn down and their enemies will be defeated. Then there's a measuring line and this vision we're told represents God's promise that Israel will be expanded and its people will live in safety. And then there's a really interesting vision of Joshua the high priest who's in really filthy clothes and the angel of the Lord comes to him puts him in clean clothes, and then also crowns him. Now, this vision is very significant because it shows that there will be coming one day a high priest who is also king. Now, this did not literally happen during their time, but this was a vision of the Messiah. And then there's a golden lampstand and two olive trees. And this represents their leader, Zerubbabel, and the high priest who lead the temple and who help restore it. Now, again, part of me is going, I don't really understand how a lampstand and olive trees mean pictures, but... You know, it's it's not an image that was written for me, but apparently it made sense to them. Then there's a flying scroll, that this speaks of judgment on those who've disobeyed God's law. Then there's a woman in a basket who's shoved down and covered up and taken to Babylon. And what this represents is this represents the sin that is covered up and taken away. Now, the, uh, some commentators say, now don't get hung up on the idea that sin is represented by a 
woman. The idea of sin and of wickedness in the Hebrew is a feminine noun. Hebrew is a language that has masculine and feminine nouns, and so that's why a woman is used. It doesn't mean that women are more evil than men or anything like that. We will see a very similar image in the book of Revelation. And then finally, there are four chariots of horses of different colors. And they run through the land. And in this particular instance, they they aren't bringing evil. They are representing judgment on the enemies of Israel. And then after this judgment, God's wrath will be appeased and rest will ensue in the land. And so all of these visions were intended to give people tremendous hope, tremendous trust in God, and that he was working on their behalf and things would turn out well. Now, in the visions, not only are there blessings for the nations, but in the middle of it, one of them is there is a blessing for the leader Zerubbabel. Now, he was a leader, but he kind of turned into a coward and he quit working on the temple because of fear. Sixteen years had gone by, but God uses a vision to strengthen him, and he says to him, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by power, not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Who are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. He will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple, and his hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This I love this story, and I talked about it last week with Haggai, but the point here is that he has not given up on Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel might have given up on his calling, on what he was supposed to do, but God did not give up on him. And Zerubbabel, it took him four more years but he was able to finish the temple. Now the theme in all of this is that the whole idea of not by might, nor by power, but by God's Spirit. Um, J. Vernon McGee, he puts it this way, he says, not by brawn or brain, but all of our work is done by God's power. Now, his power is there but we're responsible to make use of it. I remember an example that Sunday school teachers in the past used a number of times. They would always say, you know, there is electricity in the plugs in the wall, but can you make that electricity useful to you if you don't plug it in? And the whole idea is we God is available. His power is available, but we have to plug into it, so to speak. Zerubbabel had to pick himself up, and he had to get back to work. So did the others. They couldn't do the work without God's protection and his power. But at the same time, God was not going to build the temple for them. And always in scripture, we see this balance. God gives us strength and power, the ability to do things, but we have to do the work. Next, there is an intermediate section with very practical applications. They talk about briefly uh, the. It's kind of like, and and sometimes this happens in church. The pastor would give this really powerful, convicting message, and then people will come up with some little side question. Well, what about you know who's who's going to be cleaning the church this week, or you know shouldn't we do what you know and. 
sometimes a teacher will just go, you've got to be kidding me. And this is, this I think is sort of one of those situations where after this incredible stuff that people come and they say, well, you know, we have a question. Should we mourn and fast like we've been doing for years? You see, when Israel went into captivity and the temple was destroyed, for the 70 years that they were in captivity, they fasted during these different months to commemorate, not really to commemorate it, but to mourn and that all these dreadful things had happened. And in some ways you could almost hear Zechariah going, you have got to be kidding me. No, that's all over. And he says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Just as I determined to bring disaster on you and showed no pity when your ancestors angered me, now I'm determined to do good. It's kind of like, are you not listening to me? Um, you know, what I the fast of the 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th months will now become joyful and glad occasions. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. The application here is God wants the lives of his people to reflect his love and care, his truth and his peace and his justice. We don't just do religious observations for the sake of doing them. There should be meaning, there should be purpose, and now God wants us to reflect his joy, his truth, his peace, his justice in our world. Now, After this little practical interlude, then the visions switch to visions of the coming Messiah, both of the Messiah's first coming and then of his second coming. We have, uh, and this, by the way, the book of Zechariah has more messianic visions in it than any other Old Testament book except Isaiah. We earlier talked about the Messiah as the priest and king. There will be messianic visions about how the Messiah will be pierced, how he will enter Jerusalem on a donkey, how he will be forsaken by his disciples, and then there will be glorious visions of his second coming. Now, the point of all this, there's a great quote by William Orr where he says, Life is not concerned with time alone. There is an overruling power which works in time to prepare for eternity. The Jewish nation is but an example of the great passion of the heart of God for the sons of men. Now let's just spend a few minutes on some thoughts and applications. The Life Application Bible states, More than the rebuilding of the temple was at stake. The people were staging the first act in God's wonderful drama of end times. And what he's talking about there is that the temple they were building would be the one that would be built for Jesus himself to walk in. What this quote and these quotes and things remind us of is God always has his larger plan that he's working out. Now, our challenge is how are we living within that? We may not even really have an idea of all the things that God's doing, but he's called each of us to do something. The challenge to us, are we participating in God's plans or are we living that kind of selfish life the way that Haggai and Zechariah warned the people that isn't pleasing to God? C.S. Lewis has a great quote that applies here. He says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. Since Christians have, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. What can we do 
to make our world better, showing that we're looking for the world, for the kingdom of Jesus to come. How can we reflect his values? How can we live not as images of fatalism and, oh, woe is me, you know, the end is coming, but of hope and joy, because that's our future. Now, two more ideas, one a quote and then some other thoughts for our inspiration and application. I want to quote a uh, an African proverb to you that a gentleman named Stephen Cole quoted in this context. And here's the African proverb. It is, there is only one crime worse than murder on the desert, and that is to know where water is and not tell. And Cole goes on to say, God has led us to Christ, the living water. He has blessed us with his salvation and promises to bless us even more abundantly in the future. But he didn't save us so that we could sit in the lifeboat feeling warm and cozy, oblivious to the lost of the world. He saved us so that we may become a blessing to others. If you're saved, but you don't have your focus on blessing others, you've only got half the picture. He blessed you so that you might become a a blessing. Now, Zechariah ends with a destruction of the old order and then the recreation of the world where everything, from horses' bridles to cooking pots, he says, will be holy to the Lord. Now, to be holy means to be set apart for God's service. It doesn't mean to be weird or odd or not of this world, but to be to really be living as an image of how God wants us to live. What does that mean? Well, one example that really has inspired me is when Dallas Willard died, who's one of my favorite authors, Christian authors. His friend John Ortberg said about him, and he said this based on Willard's walk and life with the Lord. He said, you know, when Dallas died, he said he probably didn't even notice. Think about that. Isn't that incredible for your life to be lived so closely to the Lord, so reflecting his love, his way of interacting with people that outside of the fact that you would see the Lord face to face that you wouldn't really notice a difference. This to me is an incredible challenge, something that I know I'm going to be spending more time thinking about, praying about, but how to live so that my life can, in truth and service, really reflect the priorities, the attitudes of joy and hope that our Lord has, so that if He should interrupt our day, whether it's by death or by Him coming, that we really wouldn't notice the difference from walking in His presence in this world from the way we're living now, except for the fact that, of course, we will be seeing Him face to face. Now, we want to live that way, not just for our sake, but going back to that African proverb that we might show others the way to our Lord. That is the reason why God uses images. We ask, kind of ask that question at the start. He wants us, you see, to be his images, his image bearers in the world. We want to show people what the coming kingdom is like and how it should be lived. That's my prayer for all of us, that we reflect the image of our God. Please, Lord, make it so. Well, that's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson that are in downloadable format 
on www.bible805.com and do subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on any. We've only got one more left of the Old Testament. Then we're going to start into the New Testament. And I have some, I think, kind of exciting things I'm going to be doing with that. Now, until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.